Well, hello again, and welcome to those of you who have just joined us today, and those of you who have joined us online. I'm Pastor Graham. For any of you who don't know me, I'm the teaching pastor here, and I'm so happy to be celebrating Advent with you. Only 20 more sleeps till Christmas. We can count it on our fingers and our toes now. We're almost there. Yeah, right? This is good news. We're on our second week of Advent, and I'm so happy to be with you today. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another week, another week where we can join you. Thank you for a week where we can join together in worship of you and around your word and in celebration of the coming of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time, Lord. Help us to remember what this season is all about. There's so much to enjoy and celebrate here, God. We're, we're excited about seeing family and we're excited about giving gifts and enjoying all of the things that come with this season, God. But help us to keep you first in our mind as we do all of this, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had your perspective radically shifted? You know, where there's something that you enjoy and suddenly you see it in a different light? One of the things that I really enjoy is The Lord of the Rings. It's a, it's a book series and a, later a movie series, and I, I really enjoy The Lord of the Rings. It's a fantasy series written by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's a Christian, and the books are just full of, it's not allegory, but definitely allusions to his faith, and there's all sorts of different things in there that you can see. And in the last movie, called The Return of the King, there's this shot that they decided to include. And this shot, I didn't even know it was there. And neither did my friends when I, when I told them about it. But there's this shot in The Return of the King where the evil forces of Mordor are bombarding the good city of Minas Tirith with catapults and all sorts of things. And there's this one shot where Gandalf the wizard goes riding by on his white horse and there's a woman clutching a crying baby in the middle of this bombardment as they're trying to defend this city. And I, I never noticed this shot. And my friends didn't either. It was, it was totally new until I was watching this movie with my newborn son laying on my chest. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, there's a baby. The baby's in danger. If you love a child, or if you're thinking about children, it changes how you watch movies. Like, be warned. Because um, it's not just parents, right? Even if you love a child, it, it changes it. Today, we lit the candle of the Magi, which is, you know, a wonderful part of the Christmas story, and we're, we're having a great time reading through different parts of the Christmas story and lighting candles in remembrance of those. We also talked about a man named King Herod, but we only read half of his part of the story. He appears again in Matthew chapter 2. This morning we read Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. I'm not going to reread it, but just in case you didn't get to write it down in your notes, I thought I'd, thought I'd throw it out there. But the part of Herod's story that he's really known for is called the Massacre of the Innocents, which takes place in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Basically, right where Doug and Jan stopped reading this morning is where this part of the story picks up, and I'll read that for you now. When they had gone, they being the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, where he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was filled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Remember how I said watching Lord of the Rings changed for me when I had a little boy? Well, this story changed for me when I had a little boy. And he's almost five now, so like I'm doing better, right? He's, he's out of the danger zone of this story. But like, I love kids. My, my sister-in-law just had a little boy. Right? There, there are kids in my world that I love. And this is, this is a hard and awful, awful story. And what's, to me, what's really horrifying about this story is the historical tendency of Christians to magnify this event. It's so weird. Like, okay, if you look up on, on Wikipedia, because it's just a very convenient source, have you ever wondered how many kids died in this event? Not a nice thing to think about, right? Happy Sunday! But, like, how many? From Wikipedia, Byzantine liturgy estimated 14,000 holy innocents. The holy innocents are, are the name for the children who died on this night. They're, they're referred to as the first martyrs of Christianity. An early Syrian list of saints put the number at 64,000. Coptic sources raised this to 144,000. They also placed the event on 29 December, which is relevant because normally it's placed on 28 December. The Catholic Encyclopedia suggested that probably only between 6 and 20 children were killed in the town, with a dozen or so more in the surrounding areas. I'm sorry, what? Why? Why is there this tradition about wanting to make this number bigger? Why, why would Christians think that it's a good idea? Or, right, like, why do we have these traditions inflating this number so grossly and repeatedly at each other? It's like they're trying to show each other up. It's so weird. I, because I'm curious, I did some digging at demographic stats, and to get even 14,000 boys two and under, based on today's demographic distinctions, you'd have to be looking at a population the size of Winnipeg. Bethlehem was um, not. Estimates place the population of Bethlehem during this time between 300 and 1,000. And the 1,000 is like, people are like, that's probably pretty high. Right? So we're, we're not talking about a big population. We're talking about, you know, not that a handful of kids isn't horrifying, but it's very strange that, that this embellishment would happen. So why? Why would the tradition embellish a story like this? I'm sure there are many answers, and I don't claim to have the right one, but today I want to focus on the idea 
that maybe these people were trying to put some distance between themselves and Herod. Now, personally, I can't fathom putting even one child to death, never mind a dozen or two. So the difference between 20 and 20,000 is somewhat academic in my mind, but perhaps we can imagine a time when people had to do some terrible things. Maybe if we think back to different portions of Christian history where people were in situations that were a lot more dire than we are today, and we can imagine a time when perhaps people needed to feel that distance between themselves and Herod. And we do want to have distance between ourselves and Herod because Bible calls him, in this instance, he refers to Herod as Satan. Did you know that? In Revelation chapter 12, what's referred to as the Christmas story in the stars, we, Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, we read, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, I don't believe that Herod was literally Satan, but I do believe that Satan was literally working through Herod in this instance. I mean, come on, the dude is ordering babies to be massacred. I feel like saying that that's literally satanic shouldn't be controversial. But I do think that there's an important lesson for us here. Christmas, in addition to being a real event, can be seen as an archetype for times in our lives when God is working. Well, when isn't God working? But do you know what I mean? Like we can kind of apply it as a lens. In particular, the characters in the Christmas story play roles that we see in our lives. For example, last week Donna shared with us about the shepherds and the magi, and it was a really wonderful and uplifting message, and I encourage you to listen to it if you missed it. But the shepherds and the magi the Christmas story needs literally nothing from them, right? Like if the shepherds and the magi hadn't been there, what God was doing would still have happened just the way it did. If the shepherds and the magi hadn't shown up, if they hadn't done anything, Jesus would have still been born, everything would have still happened in the way that it needed to. And yet, they are an important part of the story, right? They were there, and they are an important. They're a beloved part of the story. We call candles after them. We talk about them in church. It's great. Sometimes we see God at work, but it's like at a distance. We're not part of it. We don't really get to be part of making it happen, but we can support it and contribute to it. Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, the Bible talks about playing this distance support role where it talks about anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. It's this idea that in participation, even though you're not the one doing the work, you're still 
helping. You're still part of what God is doing. If you want a super simple way that people play this role today, think about giving to a missionary or to a food bank, like what we do on Sundays here. You're not the one doing the work. Well, some of us are. Some of us are the ones handing out food. I see you, Henry. But for most of us, we see the work, we recognize God acting, we recognize a need, and we give to be part of that. Even if we're not the one doing it, we're still participating. In the same way that we can see how the role of the shepherds and the magi get played today when God works well, we can also see how some people sometimes play the role of Herod. God was at work that night in Bethlehem. God did something amazing and acted in the world in a way that would leave it never the same. And Satan doesn't like it when God works. And frankly, some people don't like it when God works. Some people, they want God to work, but not like that. They want Him to do something different. They've got their own ideas about what, what it is God should do. Sometimes we look at a project that the church is doing and we think it's dumb. And maybe it is dumb. I'm not saying that every time that you question what Christians do, you're being Herod, okay? I'm not saying that. But can we also acknowledge that we are not perfect and that sometimes we don't understand the calling that God has put on other people and we end up doing or thinking things against them? I'm very hesitant to criticize people who are trying to work for God. For example, I don't know if you heard, this week, Lakewood Church was in the news. That's the church pastored by Joel Osteen. They found several hundred thousand dollars inside the wall of one of their bathrooms. It's, very, it's been very interesting to me to watch the criticisms that have come out of the woodwork on this issue. Now, apparently, they were burgled several years ago. I think it was 2014. There, there are police records on all of this. They were burgled. Somebody broke into their safe and stole giving, and apparently it was stashed in the wall, and the perpetrators never came back for whatever reason, or only came back for part of it or, or something. But that, is, that is, seems to be what the police have concluded about where this money came from. But you would think, based on seeing the reactions of folks online, that Joel Osteen himself had hidden that money. Now, I have issues with the theology and the philosophy that Joel Osteen preaches. Personally, I think he's kind of misguided in, in how he leads people. But fundamentally, I also believe that he and I are on the same team. I don't listen to his stuff. I'm not suggesting that you should or shouldn't for that matter. I'm going to leave that judgment up to God because I also don't want to be a Herod trying to stop what God is able to pull from that situation. Despite my misgivings, God works through all sorts of things. And if we're going to pull the Christmas story out and view it as an archetype in addition to its literal narrative, because I'm by no means saying the Christmas story isn't real, then we also have to think about times when God is wanting to work through us and how people will react to that. Because there will be Herods in your life. There will be people who look at what God has asked you to do, what God has called you to do, and they will try to stop it. Probably not in so violent and evil a way as Herod did that night in Bethlehem. But they'll, they'll try. Think of the Apostle Paul. He certainly faced opposition when he tried to work for God. He was beaten, whipped, pelted with stones, left for dead. They created riots and chased him out of cities. 
all because God had something that he was doing through Paul, and the people around didn't like that. When God calls on you, when God shows you purpose and action, expect that there will be Herods around too. But I want to leave us with a message of hope. Herod died an enemy of God, an evil man who cared about nothing but his own power. But enemies of God are not predestined to stay that way. Because I think the more we think about it, we have all been Herod in our own ways. We too were enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says that Christ died for us while we were still God's enemies. I mentioned Paul a moment ago and what an example there. He puts it succinctly in Galatians chapter 1 where he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Then skipping down a little bit to verse 23, they only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Paul, the great enemy of the Christian faith, was saved by God and then used by God to make an astounding difference in the world. We who stand today can hear that story, hear Paul speak of God's faithfulness and redemption, and know that it can be so in our lives as well. Because just as we have been enemies of God, as we have turned away from Him and rejected Him and fought against the things that God has wanted to do in our lives, so too is there hope for us to be used because we were God's enemies and God still loved us and lo continues to love us and continues to reach for us. I'd like to conclude by reading a passage from Romans where Paul talks about all of this. It's a message of hope of the nearness of God and of the availability of salvation to all who would call on the name of Jesus. Romans chapter 10. What does it say? The word is near to you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at the Christmas story as we look with horror on this part of the Christmas story where Herod committed an awful atrocity against those families and people, against his own people, God. We wonder about our own capacity for evil. We recognize that we too have been en your enemies and that it is only by your grace that we have been anything else. We thank you for, this, for your son. We thank you for Jesus who we celebrate at Advent, his coming, we also remember his death and his resurrection as we did this morning in communion. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to be your people, 
that you would continue to make us not into just not your enemies, but your servants, and more than servants, that you would call us friends, as you promised in your word. Pray all this in your name. Amen.